hope everyone had a Merry Christmas and a good time with family and friends. Um, before we start, I want to apologize in advance. I woke up stuffed up as all get out this morning, um, and I have a bit of a tendency to talk too fast, so if at any time you don't understand a word I'm saying, I'm not speaking in tongues, um, and please feel free to wave at me or give me some signal that you can't understand a word I'm saying. Um, so before anything else, let's pray. Father, I thank you for gathering us all here together today. God, you are marvelous and wonderful. You're mysterious, and our life is a gift. God, I ask you this morning that you give me the words to speak, that it's your words coming out, not mine. And I ask that if anyone needs to hear something this morning, that they hear it and understand it. Thank you for who you are and what you've given us. Amen. Um, so on top of Christmas, I hope everyone had a good New Year's. Um, did anyone, by show of hands, make a New Year's resolution this year? I know it's a, it's a pretty common thing, but it seems like it's getting less. Um, and I would say that that's because we're really, really bad at them. Um, if, has anyone ever failed a New Year's resolution? I know, yeah, there we go. A lot more hands there. Um, so imagine for a second that everyone everywhere had succeeded in every New Year's resolution they'd ever made. Um, I would say the world would look like a lot better place. We'd all be patient, kind, skinnier, more productive. Um, it would probably be a better world to live in. Um, but better yet, let's imagine if one person succeeded in all of the New Year's resolutions. I'd say they'd be pretty fit, pretty rich, pretty powerful, wise, patient. Um, they would help other people. They would find love. They'd make the world a better place. And they'd probably have a pretty good time doing it. Um, if someone met all of our New Year's resolutions, they would be, I would say, as close to what this world thinks is a perfect person as possible. Um, and if we have anything even close to this imaginary perfect person, um, as far as the world goes, it's probably Solomon in the Old Testament. Uh, so a bit of a refresher on who Solomon is. He was the son of King David. Um, king David was the king of ancient Israel. He conquered a bunch of neighboring kingdoms to create this nation. Um, and Solomon was born in power and wealth into a kingdom David had already conquered. Um, God had told Solomon he would give him anything that he wanted, and Solomon asked for wisdom, so God blessed him with riches and power and other things on top of that. Um, Solomon had everything he could ever want, and then on top of that, some more. Uh, modern estimates of what he was worth is could up to the trillions of dollars. He had hundreds and hundreds of wives, which we'll get back to. Um, <laughs> and the people loved him. He made the nation of Israel extremely wealthy. 1 Kings 10.27 says this, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as the sycamore figs in the foothills. Solomon could do whatever he wanted, wherever he wanted, and his people loved him. He was rich and powerful and famous, and by our standards, Solomon in his prime, he got it. He could have written the book on how to, be, how to live life, and he kind of did. Um, we're pretty lucky because this wise man wrote three books in the Bible— um, Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And Proverbs is the one he's probably the most famous for. Um, it's, he wrote it in the prime of his life. It's a collection of wisdom sayings on how to live a good and righteous life. And the life that he was talking about was his. Um, but the thing is that while Proverbs and Song of Songs are pretty famous, um, the third one is often kind of overlooked. And it's my favorite book of the Bible. It's Ecclesiastes. Um, Solomon is remembered for his wealth and for his wisdom more than anything else. And because of that, we often look at his time on earth as in a pretty positive light. Um, that's what he's famous for. Um, 
But if you look at Kings, um, the book of Kings and First and Second Kings, Solomon's life actually began a downward spiral soon after he completed the temple. Um, he was the wisest, richest, and best-loved king in all of Israel, but what he forgot was God. Um, he married a bunch of women from foreign countries to secure alliances, um, which was pretty common at the time, but God had forbidden it. Um, and we kind of make jokes about how many wives he had, because having being married to like 1,200 people is insane, um, and obviously not okay. Uh, but it wasn't the marriages themselves that caused his downfall. According to 1 Kings 11, 4 through 6, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. What God does is he passes judgment on Solomon. He tells him his kingdom will be divided and destroyed and given only a piece to his son. And that is why Solomon is actually the last king of a united Israel. After this, it splits into Israel and Judah, and it gets conquered by neighboring kingdoms, and it never regains its former glory. Solomon, in his selfishness, destroys what his father had built. This is the point in his life when he wrote Ecclesiastes. Uh, most scholars think it was written in about the last five years of his life, um, and it's from the perspective of a man known as the teacher. And th there's also a narrator who kind of sums up his words. And most scholars agree that the teacher is Solomon based on some of the descriptions he gives of his time on earth. There's some debate on if the narrator is also Solomon or if it's someone else later compiling what Solomon said. But either way, the majority of the book is Solomon's state of mind as after his magnificent rule and knowing that it's all coming crumbling down. And you may expect a book where the most powerful man in the world looks back on his life talking about all of these great things to be kind of maybe self-celebratory. He might talk about all these cool things he did and how awesome his life was. Um, we know he ended his life in a pretty selfish way, um, trying to do his own thing. So you would think he might say, look at all these cool things I did. Um, but to sum it up in one word, Ecclesiastes is a bummer. Um, Solomon doesn't look back on all this time in a positive way or a nostalgic way. Um, what he looks back on his achievements as is meaningless. The book has the tone of a defeated man with nothing but regrets, hoping that maybe he can turn away anyone else from living a life like his. Um, so please turn with me to Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11, and it'll be up on the screen. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, it circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams go, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not, not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it's said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be, 
among those who come after. Ecclesiastes opens with a sort of poem, um, and it sets the tone for most of the rest of the book. The opening line is, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word vanity more literally translates to breath or smoke. This man who had everything opens his book, telling us that everything he's done is nothing more than smoke in the wind. Um, and this opening is really the conclusion Solomon has come to about life. Um, it's a summary of everything this wisest man on earth has learned in his quest for meaning. Nothing in the world matters, nothing in the world is forever, and nothing in the world will fulfill him. Um, and I don't know about you guys, if, if I read this, my first thought is kind of like, all right, Solomon, like, yeah, welcome to life. Like, it's kind of depressing. Um, get over it. I kind of want to just roll my eyes and say, like, yeah, whatever. It's kind of like if a rich kid complains that he doesn't like a particular brand of caviar. It's like, you had everything. Like, come on. Um, and it's easy to read this and think of the things in our life that we attribute meaning to. Um, surely between family, friends, jobs, legacy, charity, power, wealth, wisdom, pleasures, righteousness, something in there has to give our life some sort of meaning. Um, but the thing is, Solomon doesn't just make this claim at the beginning. The rest of the book is what backs it up. He takes us on this journey he went on, trying to find meaning, um, that leads to this conclusion. And a, a bit of warning, the book is kind of confusing. It's not very linear. He repeats himself a lot. I um, mean, he kind of goes in circles. The opening, he talks about the streams flowing in circles and the air going in circles. And that's kind of the way the book works. Um, he'll say, does this give meaning? And say, no. And then say, what does that mean about life? And then he repeats it with something else. Then he goes back to the earlier thing. Um, and it's kind of, can be kind of confusing. So we're going to look at all the things Solomon says he tried. And then at the end, we're going to look at what he says those things mean. Um, so let's see how Solomon got where he did. Um, his journey begins with this wisest man in the world deciding he's going to find the meaning of life. Um, in the first place, he looks as wisdom. He's the wisest man in the world. It's what he's good at. It's um, what he's gifted in. It's what he takes pride in. It's who he is. He says, I'm going to look at the thing that I am really good at. Um, and in chapter 1, 12 through 18, he says this. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all in Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and perceived this also is but striving after the wind. Solomon is incredibly wise. He's incredibly knowledgeable. And when he asks, have those things fulfilled me? He says, no, he's still empty. And why is this? He gets into that in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And in my heart, that also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. The reason Solomon is not fulfilled by being the wisest man in the world, by being the best at something in the world, he determines is because the wise and the fool die the exact same. Um, and we do the same thing Solomon did. We try to give our life meaning based on what we're good at. 
Um, we say, oh, I'm the smart one. I'm the funny one. I'm the public speaker. I'm the sensitive one, the popular one. I'm a good person. I defend others. We say, well, that's who I am. And the more we set ourselves apart in that area, the more we tell ourselves that we're giving ourselves meaning. But Solomon concludes that's not the case. So after saying wisdom, the thing he's best at, isn't getting him anywhere, Solomon turns in another direction. He looks at pleasure and possessions and accomplishments. So please turn to chapter 2, verses 1 and 11. Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves born in my house. I had also great possessions and herds and flocks, more than any in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Every earthly pleasure you can imagine is in Solomon's grasp. He has food, he has drink, he has sex, he has natural beauty, he has man-made beauty, he has accomplishments, he has possessions and riches. Everything you can do to entertain yourself, to be comfortable, or to feel good about yourself, Solomon has and Solomon has done. And also notice in verse 9, it says, my wisdom remained with me. Solomon, he's not living some crazy party lifestyle of hedonism. He's, by our standards, living a really wonderful and responsible life with anything he could ever want. And what does verse 11 say? I considered all my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon is the wisest man living the most pleasurable life, and he says it's all been worth nothing. He's still not fulfilled. And we do the same thing here, too. We say, well, if I date enough people, if I take enough breaks, if I do enough fun things, somehow all of that's going to add up and make something that has, looks kind of like meaning. Um, maybe at your funeral they'll say, oh, they were the life of the party. Um, but Solomon has done everything, and he says he still feels empty. So he knows he's been looking in the wrong place. And he says, maybe all the work that he did is what has given his life meaning. Maybe he's made something for future generations, and that's it. In chapter 2, verses 18 and 20, he says this, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master for all of which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned around and gave my heart up to despair over all of my toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a man who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is where things get kind of tough. Um, obviously, pleasure is not going to give meaning to life. We might think that, but that's kind of, you can logic that one out. 
Um, but we really value hard work. Um, it gets respect and acclaim in our world, um, and, and it's something we look up to. Uh, but what Solomon determines is that this hard work he's done didn't pay off in the way he had hoped it would. It pays off in the way you'd expect. Look at the pleasure, pleasure section. He had everything he could want. Um, but he finds he's still empty. He still feels like his life hasn't had a purpose or any ultimate meaning. He declares here that anything you accomplish is just going to be left to others who didn't deserve it. So why even bother? That's, that's what he says here. Um, it doesn't bring him any ultimate fulfillment. And we tend to think, well, if you keep your head down and work hard and contribute to society, that's a purposeful life, like that's meaningful. Um, and it's definitely good to work hard. The Bible tells us that. It's good to do all the things that he said, but Solomon is saying he's done it all and his life doesn't feel like it's had a purpose. Um, so he's determined wisdom and pleasure and work have not fulfilled him. He said, no matter how wise you are, how fun your life was, or how hard you work, in the end, it's vanity of vanities. And he does talk about some other things, so we're going to just real quickly look at some other uh, places he explores having meaning. He says, maybe, maybe it's just wealth. And in chapter 5, 10, and 11, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eats them. And what advantage has their owner to see them with their eyes? He says, what's even the point of having wealth? The more you have, the more you want. And in the end, all you can even do is look at it. He says, well, maybe doing lots of new things and having cool experiences is it. But he said in chapter 1, what has been is what will be, and what will be done has been done. See, there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, this is new? It has been done in the ages before us. He says, you can do new things, you can have lots of cool experiences, but someone's done it before, and in the end, it doesn't make a difference. And lastly, he says, maybe it's being a good person. And in chapter 7:15, he says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Solomon says, it doesn't matter how good you are, the world is unfair. You'll deal with pain and suffering, and the world won't change. What it, comes down for Solomon, what it comes down to for Solomon is that we're all going to die. That's the end-all, be-all for Solomon's quest for meaning. He says nothing is permanent, so nothing really matters. In chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, he says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. That's a, it's a bummer. I mean, and where does this leave Solomon? In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he says, I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living, who are still alive, but better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil done under the sun. Solomon is in a dark, dark place, and that's how he gets to the point he was at the beginning when he said everything is meaningless. And where, where does that leave us? I mean, what's the point of a book of the Bible that says your life is pointless? Um, that's, it's not the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. If that was the case, um, we would have no hope. If the purpose of our lives came from this world, we would have no hope at all. We'd be living in an empty universe on a little rock flying through space, and that's it. Um, and some of you may have caught on to a phrase that's popped up an awful lot today. Um, that's under the sun. It's used 29 times in Ecclesiastes. 
um, almost every time Solomon says something is meaningless or vanity, he uses this phrase. He says, nothing is new under the sun. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. What is done under the sun was grievous to me. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. This phrase is the important caveat to Ecclesiastes because what it tells us is what Solomon's been saying isn't meant to be universal. He's talking about our world here and now. Um, so let's look back on where Solomon is at this point in his life. He was granted wisdom and riches and built the temple, and what he determines is it's not enough. He abandons God in exchange for power, and he's told by God that his kingdom will be torn from him. Solomon got to that point because what he determined is he was going to be the one to give his life meaning. He's trying to find something under the sun to make up for the God he abandoned. That's his problem. Solomon's looking in the wrong place. What he said about it, everything is true, well, for the most part. Power, wealth, happiness, achievement, and wisdom, those are all meaningless. They're not going to give his, his life purpose. They can be good things, and they can be things we're actually commanded to do, but in the end, they're only temporary, and those are the things Solomon has spent his whole life pursuing. He's like a man in a desert dying of thirst. He crests a hill and sees a mirage and runs to it and realizes it's an illusion. Then he climbs the next hill and sees another mirage and runs to it and sees it's nothing. And we do the exact same thing. We say, well, when I get to that next big milestone in my life, that's when I'll be there. That's when I'll get it. We say, oh, when I graduate, when I get married, when I have kids, when I get a promotion, when I retire, when I have grandkids, oh, that's when, that's when I'll get it. That's when my life will have had a purpose. Um, that'll be what makes us content. And I, I mean, I relate to this one. My whole life, you're told, I was told by my teachers, well, you go to school so you can get to college, and you get to college so you can get a job, and you get a job so, oh, well, that, that's it, you get a job. Maybe you can retire. Like, um, and that's an issue high schoolers face, that's an issue people working face, college students face, parents face, grandparents face. It's the one issue we all face, and it's death. It's, it, it's all gonna end. That's what Solomon realizes in Ecclesiastes. His whole life he said, oh, the next big thing will get me there. But then he gets to the end of his life and there's no big things left. And he realizes everything he's been chasing has been vanity of vanities striving after the wind. So Ecclesiastes is a total bummer, um, but it's not a book without hope. And there are three common threads through the whole book. After he says something has meaning, these three things keep popping up over and over and over. He can't seem to shake these ideas. The first big thing is eternity. Solomon realizes there's got to be something more, something he's been missing this whole time. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says this, What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into the heart of man. So yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Solomon realizes God made us in a way that we know there's more than this world, but we're stuck in this world all the same. We know there's something beyond this, but we can't even comprehend the idea of an eternity. The fact that God put eternity in our hearts tells us there is something more. Earlier, Solomon said, man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust return. And while that's true of our physical bodies, a dog doesn't sit there and wonder what's going to happen to it after it dies. That's not a thing. Solomon's, what he says here points to something else, and that's what brings us to our next point. 
Not only are we made with the knowledge that there's something more, we get to know what that something more is. We know God is in control and God has a plan. And Solomon recognizes this frequently in Ecclesiastes. He says we don't have to live in a miserable agnostic state of maybe there's something more, but we don't know what it is. Um, but he also recognizes God's plans can be un- understandable. We don't get to know them necessarily. In chapter 8, 16, and 17, he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know it, he cannot find it out. It can be a tough pill to swallow that we don't get to know God's plans, but it's also something we can rest in. Um, Matthew 6, 25 through 29 says this. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. We, we can't get the idea of eternity. We can't understand exactly how God's plan works, but that's a good thing. I mean, any plan that humans could understand would probably not be that great of a plan. Um, we live in a really confusing, really turbulent world, but we can rest assured that God's, God cares for us and he's going to take care of us. In the same way he gives the physical needs to the sparrows and to the lilies of the field and to us, we also know that whatever his eternal plan is, that it's good. Um, and that brings us to our last point, and that's the last big message in Ecclesiastes. It's the fact that this world doesn't give us meaning, but it's not a place that we should choose to be miserable. It, life's a gift. Um, in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Solomon says, This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun. During the few days of life that God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. It it seems contradictory that Solomon spent a whole book talking about, oh, life is pointless, life is meaningless, and then to say, but it's a gift. Um, And that's the thing, though. Ecclesiastes can be depressing and nihilistic and a real bummer, um, but it's also freeing. In chapter 322, Solomon says, So I saw there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what is after them? This is an idea Jesus emphasizes all the time in his ministry on earth. Matthew 6, 19-21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We don't have to worry about this world because nothing in this world can truly fulfill us. Nothing under the sun is going to give us true hope. That's what Solomon concludes in Ecclesiastes. And the thing is, that can be depressing for those who don't believe, but to us, that should be something that we take joy in. In chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, Solomon says, Go eat your bread with joy, 
and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and the toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might, for there is no work, nor thought, nor wisdom in Sheol where you are going. And Sheol is the grave. So there's no work, thought, or knowledge in the grave. We, don't, we can't take it with us. So we don't have to worry about missing out on something here in this world. We don't have to hold on too tightly to God's gifts because he's given them to us to enjoy. It's our lot. Um, I'm going to let my inner nerd show for just a quick minute. Um, in The Lord of the Rings and other books by J.R.R. Tolkien, um, he makes all these fantasy races, um, elves and dragons and dwarves, and they all live pretty much forever. Um, and in his world, there's a creator, and the last thing he makes is man. And the creator of their world gives man a gift, and it's not pleasure or power or wealth. The gift they give man is death. Um, in Tolkien's world, mankind is the only race that can change the world truly because their lives are so short and they're not worried about living forever. Um, they know that when they die, something happens, which we get to know what happens. Um, and so they live their lives to the fullest. They don't fear death because they know they have just a short time. And in our world, death's not a gift. It's a result of the fall of man. I'm not claiming it's a gift. It is a curse. Um, but there is something in common with us in Middle Earth, and that's that we don't have to fear it. Um, we don't have to worry about finding something here on Earth to give us meaning because this world is a fleeting thing, and we have a promise of something better to come. Um, so many of you here know that in church you're going to hear the gospel and God, they're what gives life meaning. Um, but the thing is that Solomon also knew that God is what gives life meaning, and he was led astray by idols of this world that claimed they would give him more meaning. In the same way in the Garden of Eden, the serpent told Eve that he would give her true knowledge. Um, we all have a tendency to listen to things besides God in that way. Um, the last thing that the teacher in Ecclesiastes has to say is this. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon doesn't look back on his life regretting the actions he took. He doesn't say, I wish I had done this differently. What he regrets is that the things he did, he didn't do for God. There are lots and lots of books in the Bible about how to live a godly life. Um, but the message of today and the message of Ecclesiastes isn't about the specific choices you should make. Um, they're about the it's about the motivation behind those choices. Ecclesiastes tells us we don't need to focus on the things of this world. We should remember our creator in whatever situation arises. This is something Jesus understood. Um, next week, we're going to start a series on the Beatitudes, and that's a series of points where Jesus says, blessed are you when this thing and this thing and this thing happens. And the things he says are really kind of bad things sometimes. Um, it's when his followers are at the lowest of their low, and he says, blessed are you. Um, Christ knew that our world's just a breath. He knew it was nothing compared to the eternal life he was going to be able to offer. Um, and so we're commanded to live according to God's word. Um, and I hope that if you made a resolution this year or if you just have a general idea of who you want to be, that that is a step towards being like God. Um, but you have to remember where true hope lies. If you feel called to lose weight, being healthy won't ultimately fulfill you. If you feel called to work harder, hard work won't ultimately fulfill you. 
If you feel called to be a better person, being a better person won't ultimately fulfill you. Um, it's doing these things out of obedience to God that is what fulfills you. Earlier we talked about Solomon being like a man chasing mirages in the desert trying to get a drink of water. Um, well, John 4.13 4, says this. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give them will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Remember that the only thing in your life that's going to satisfy you is Christ himself. And I hope you have a happy new year. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of life. I thank you you've put us here with each other in a way that we can learn more about you and grow closer to you. God, I ask you to help us live without fear, without fear that this world is what ultimately matters. I ask you to help us appreciate the gifts you've given us, to appreciate the fact that we get to live in this world for such a short time. God, I ask you to help us to remember our creator in everything we do, and that as we go forward, we would have our minds on eternity. Amen.